Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer steps back into the Faith Foundation series. Have you ever wondered how the Bible came into existence? In today's talk, we answer the question, how did we get the Bible? Stay with us to the end and find out how you can connect to Unity Baptist Church. Talking about the Bible. We're not just preaching from the Bible, we're going to be teaching you about the Bible. This is the last in a several part series on the Word of God itself, something we call bibliology. It's a study of the doctrine of the Bible. What does the Bible say about itself? Can it be trusted? We started this series before Mother's Day, and then we paused to look at eternity. You know, what happens after we die? And we took a few moments to look at that. And this morning, we're going to answer some difficult questions about the Bible as we finish. This is all part of a larger group series, a series of series about the, about the church. We began many, uh, many weeks ago in the book of Acts chapter two. We saw the birth of the church and we saw that there were 14 different characteristics of a healthy church, one of which is that they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine, that there's, the word of God is central to that church and it's central to this church. Everything we teach, everything we do comes from the word of God. So it's important then that we understand what the Bible says about the Bible and that as a church, we have to be willing to answer the hard questions, the kind of questions that you're gonna get out there on the street. One of those questions that you're gonna hear is, number one, um, isn't the Bible just a book written by a bunch of men? I mean, maybe you've heard that comment before. How do you answer that? Obviously, men had their hand in writing the Bible. Does that then mean that everything that we have in the Bible is just uh, the opinions of men? Do we put this on the shelf, you know, next to Confucius and next to some other, you know, great philosophers and teachers? Do we put them up there next to the the Buddha? You know, is is that all this is, is just a collection of wise sayings from some men throughout history that Christians collected and we called the Bible? I'll answer that one real quick for you. No, it's not. This is a divine book. In fact, I would reference you to, if you want to understand how divine this book is, to look back a few weeks ago, just before Mother's Day, we preached a message called The Signature of God. It revealed to us how we know that this is a divine book and not just a collection of wise sayings from humans. Because if it was, then yeah, we have every reason to debate and argue as to whether or not this is true. So wasn't the Bible just written by a bunch of men? No, it wasn't. Then how did it get to us and still be the word of God? It's a word called inspiration, okay? You learn about the doctrine of inspiration when you study by uh, bibliology. Now, inspiration, we use that term flippantly today. If you watch the Olympics and you watch figure skaters, I don't love watching that, but my wife does, so I get stuck watching them. You know, Sometimes they'll describe these, this pair's figure skating as an inspired uh, figure skating routine. Sometimes we'll talk about an author of fiction. We'll say they just felt inspired to write this. They had just some sudden energy to do it. It may be that you come home, ladies, and you found out that your husband, he cleaned the house and he had mowed the lawn. Yeah? And you guys, so what, what possessed you to do this? And he said, I don't know, I just felt inspired. That's not the meaning of biblical inspiration. So what do we mean when we say that the Bible is inspired? The best definition I can give you for inspiration is the one that I paid $120 a credit hour to learn, okay? So you're gonna hear it here. So for those of you who like to take good notes, <coughs> 
I realize that this is a fairly technical definition, but I'm, I have it here for you. It's by a fellow named Dr. Charles Ryrie. And he said that inspiration is God's superintendence, that's God's overview, uh, his, his working through man, okay, God's superintendence of the human authors of Scripture, so that using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded, without error, mind you, his revelation to man uh, in the words of the original autographs. Now that is a, a mouthful, and no, I'm not gonna repeat that, but I'm gonna leave it up here for a minute. So if you wanna see it and write it down, you can. That is a very good definition of what inspiration is, but I'm not just gonna leave you with Charles Ryrie here. We're actually gonna look at some scripture. Okay, So it's important to understand that we talk about God-inspired men to write. They didn't just enter some kind of trance and write something. They're like, wow, what was that? Where'd that come from? They weren't possessed. Okay, God used the writers and authors' individual personalities, but yet because it's from God, he recorded his message without error. Okay, so the, some of the scriptures, we're gonna look at various scriptures this morning, so we're not just gonna be in one singular place. We'll put them on the screen for you. When we talk about inspiration, there's two key words that we use to describe the inspiration of God, verbal and plenary inspiration. You say, boy, that sounds really boring. When do we get out? This is important stuff. I'm here to tell you, this is it's very important that as believers, we all understand this. If you look at 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, it says all scripture is breathed out by God, okay? All scripture is breathed out by God, okay? It's the, the Greek word theonoustos, that God breathed out. When we talk about the breath of God, we're talking about the exercise of God's power. If you read in Genesis when uh, God created man, you read in Genesis 2-7, it says, the Lord formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so God breathed this out. He breathed out the very words that these guys were going to use. And so we use the term verbal. Okay? But it also says that how much of scripture is breathed out by God? All, oh, good. I was hoping some of you were still with me. All scripture. So that is where we get the word plenary. We don't like using that word because it's, it's not a word we use every day. But if you've ever been to a conference and you ever go to a plenary session, who goes to that session? All. Everybody goes there, okay? So when we talk about verbal plenary inspiration, it simply means all of Scripture is inspired by God. We're not one of these Christians who pick and choose and go, you know, I really like this here, this part here about the Sermon on the Mount, uh, but this over here about Noah and the ark, I don't believe in that, so I'm gonna throw that out. These things about science, we're gonna throw that out. These parts about history, we're gonna throw that out. All Scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is given by God. It says it's from God, so it's not the message of the authors themselves. And it says the word of God was breathed through them, that God exercised his power. God breathed upon Adam and he got life. In Revelation 19, we're gonna read in Armageddon, a sword will proceed from his mouth. With a single word, God will destroy all of the enemies of God. So the breath of God is the exercise of his power. It's why if you read the Chronicles of Narnia and you read about this big lion called Aslan, who is a picture of Jesus Christ, sometimes he'll do something odd. It'll say something like he breathed on the children. 
Now, when you hear that happen in like, we listen to it in the car in like this reader's theater, it always just struck me odd. What is this kid, what is this lion breathing on children for? Um, it's a picture of God and his, and his life and his power moving forward. So when we talk about the Bible as God breathed, it's the very power of God that created this book and that gives it the life and the energy that it has. Okay. To give you a little better understanding of what we mean here, we're going to look now at 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. We're talking about, well, what did that inspiration actually look like? It says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's, someone's own interpretation. Pause. When he says knowing this first of all, he's saying that we need to get this straight. This is an important doctrine. You may have come here this morning hoping to hear uh, three points about how you can have a better marriage. Okay, come back this fall. We're going to do something on the family. But he's saying, knowing this first of all, this is an important doctrine. If we don't get bibliology right, all the rest of Christianity crumbles and falls apart. That's why people always attack the word of God. And so knowing this first of all, this is an important doctrine. He says that no prophecy of scripture came from someone's own interpretation. This isn't some guy's idea. No man thought up the Bible. He wouldn't write the Bible. If you go back and listen to that message a week before Mother's Day, The Signature of God, you're gonna see that we talked about how the Bible is not a book that man would write, even if he had the ability. Every other religion in the world, and I mean every single religion in the world, if you stack them up and compare them, they all essentially have the same message, don't they? You've done wrong things, there's sin and the suffering in the world, but ultimately you're the one that saves yourself. You are going to heaven because of you. You're just that good. You've done enough good works. You impressed God. You're gonna kick open the doors of heaven one day and God has you to think that you're in, the, in, in eternity with him. There's only one book in the Bible that says, yeah, you're all sinners and guess what? I'm gonna give you even more bad news. All of your righteousness, filthy rags, Okay? There's only one book in the whole universe that says that. And there's only one book in the universe that says that the glory belongs to God alone. There's only one book in the universe that says it's not of works lest any man should boast. There's only one book in the universe that strips man of his glory, that strips man of his ability to save himself and gives all glory to God. Friends, if God wrote a book, he's gonna give himself the glory. If man writes a book, he's gonna give himself the glory. You tell me which one came from God. It's the book that begins with, in the beginning, God. And the whole rest of the book is about him. And so, <clears throat> as we look at this, he says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Nobody wanted to write this book. He says, but men spoke from God. Okay, that message is from God. This is not a human message. This is not a book that man could write if he would. The Bible's full of prophecies that are historically verifiable that, that, that man could not have predicted. The rise and fall of world empires, the reuniting of Israel together as a nation. I mean, just crazy stuff. The Bible also talks about scientific things, hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before man even discovered it. Man couldn't have written this Bible. And so this is a book that says men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to focus for just a moment on these, this word here, carried along. What does it mean that men were carried along? This is what it looked like when God inspired man to write the Bible, okay? So carried along. This, if you study, if you do word studies, often you'll look in other places of scripture to see where that word was used so that you understand the word better. This word carried along, guess where else it was used of? John the Baptist head. 
Okay, not trying to be too graphic here. You know the story of John the Baptist. He was not a mild preacher. He would tell you like it is. Not in a mean way, a loving way, but he's like, hey, brother, Herod, you can't be marrying your niece. Well, his niece Herodias didn't like that too much, so she sends up her daughter Salome to do some dancing, impresses the guys, and, uh, and he says, I'll give you whatever you want. And she says, and the mom had coached her, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head. And you all remember how this story ends. John the Baptist's head was brought in on a silver platter, wasn't it? And it says that they brought in John the Baptist's head. Now, let me ask you, uh, did John the Baptist's head choose to be where it's going? I don't think so. You know, you can safely answer that one, no. Um, did John the Baptist's head, you know, choose to levitate itself? Did it just kind of, you know, float into the room under its own power? No, it didn't. Was it still John the Baptist's head? Yes, it was. And so that is the very word here when the Bible says that these men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As they wrote, it's still using these people. But it's not their own will and desire that brought it about. In fact, it's not even their own thoughts that brought it about. Their, their heads, if you will, were carried along by the Holy Spirit where they're supposed to go so that they could record without error God's words and not man's. That's what inspiration looks like. They didn't just feel like, whoo, I'm going to write some scripture today. You know, it's, it's that God at his time carried them along to convey a perfect message. So no, this is not a book just written by a bunch of men. This is God's word breathed out with his power through people. So number two, how do we know the Bible's complete? This is a good question. How do you know that we aren't looking for more scripture here? Or maybe, maybe you are. You shouldn't be, by the way. How do we know we're not supposed to be looking for more scripture? By the way, if you're gonna start a cult, okay, uh, take note, Gary Hensley, if you wanna start a cult before you buy your box of beads and buy 40 acres south of town to start your own cult, you have to do this. You have to add to scripture. Because if you just take a Bible by itself and you teach it plainly, verse by verse, explaining what the Bible says, the result is always gonna be people are gonna follow Jesus, not you. And you can't have that if you're gonna run a cult. So you have to add to scripture. And there's lots of cults out there that do that. They call themselves Christians, but they add to scripture so that you will follow man, not God. Not trying to be mean or nasty here, but friends, one example of that is the Mormon church. I grew up as a kid, I, used to, I remember these ads from when I was a child. I'd be you know, trying to watch Little House on the Prairie after school and all of a sudden some ad would come up and it would, it would begin with this question. Wouldn't it be nice if there was another testament of Jesus Christ? Now, I'm like a 10-year-old kid, and I'm going, no, Bible's done. What are you doing? You know, I'm like, who is this? And I'm watching this, and it's panning over in this beautiful, calm voice just saying, behold, it's the Book of Mormon, and you can have another testament of Jesus. And it's meant to prey upon those who are churched but unbelievers those who are churched but immature. And you'll think, you know, that would be cool. What if we did have more testaments of Jesus Christ? What if we did have more? I want, I want something more than what God gave me. I want an extra word, an extra prophecy, something extra. Friends, anytime a church is offering you something beyond the word of God, they have a motive behind it and it's not healthy. This alone is sufficient. The Bible says the Bible, everything we need for life and godliness, the Bible says it's here. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 talks about all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect. Doesn't mean all of a sudden Kevin's gonna start doing the dishes every day in Mary Faye. But it, perfect means complete. Everything you need 
To become a godly Christian is found in all scripture. We don't need to add to this. And when somebody says, I've got a new prophecy for you, I've got a new word from God today, we're going to give you another testament of Jesus Christ, that's when you have trouble. You need to avoid that kind of stuff. So, but how do you know that we don't have more scripture? Now, if you talk to most Christians, and I said, hey, how do you know there's not book 67? By the way, there's 66 books in the Bible. How do you know there's no book 67 coming down the pipe? Most of you would turn where? Revelation. Yeah, 22, okay? That's where we would, most of us were. It's the very last pages of your Bible. And, you know, and it says this, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Trust me, you don't want them. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, right, what does he say? God will take his share away from the tree of life. You're, you're, you're not gonna go to heaven. You won't inherit the kingdom of God. And so we usually, we share that verse and we're like, we kind of sit back smugly going, that was an easy one. All right, what do you got? Well, I shared that same passage uh, many years ago in my early 20s when I was a young man in the ministry and I was talking to a Mormon and they said, wait, but do you know that that same warning is all over the earlier pages of scripture too? Say what? Come on, okay. So they've got my attention. And they showed me Deuteronomy chapter four, verse two. They said, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Uh Uh-oh. So was the Bible supposed to stop at Deuteronomy now? But it's not just in Deuteronomy there, friends. I can point you to many other passages. Uh, It's in Deuteronomy 12, 32, Proverbs 30, verse six, Jeremiah 26, and verse two. Oh, Now what do we do to show people that the Bible is complete and we don't add to it? Can I tell you, you can still use Revelation 22, but don't use it to start. Begin instead to John 16. If you want to, feel free to flip back, or if you're any more in the modern church, use your phones and dial up and look for John chapter 16. Verse 12. In John 16, Jesus' earthly ministry is nearly complete. He's taught everything he's gonna teach. And having taught his disciples, he knows he's about to leave. These are the last words of Jesus, if you will, before he goes on to be betrayed and he is, you know, we have the whole Passion Week and the crucifixion. Now, if, you're, if you have final words to say to your child before they go to college, these are important things. These are like, hey, you need to know this. You're, you're telling them about their future, things they need to be doing. Jesus is doing the same thing. And so in John chapter 16, verse 12, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you. What does that mean? That there's going to be more truth from God beyond the gospels. There's more that I have to tell you, he says, but you're not ready to bear it now. You can't handle it. God's word is released in certain revelatory periods where God shares more scripture. But God doesn't just give it to us all at once. So so John 16 tells us there's gonna be more beyond the Old Testament, beyond even the teachings of Christ and the gospels. You should expect more scripture. The Bible tells us it's coming. So that's the context here. And then in verse uh, 13, it says, when the spirit of truth comes, who's that? That's the Holy Spirit. Jesus said he's coming. He would come upon men in the Old Testament and, and, and depart from them for certain purposes. When God sends the Holy Spirit in Pentecost, Acts 2, he's going to permanently indwell believers. But for the apostles of Jesus Christ in particular, he's gonna do something else. The, when the spirit of truth comes, He will guide you. Who's Jesus talking to? 
I'm going to quit as a pastor if you don't tell me. Okay? <laughs> he's, talking to the, he's, he's talking to his apostles, right? And so there, he's saying there's more scripture coming. It's going to be when the Holy Spirit comes, in other words, following Pentecost, and it's going to come through whom? He will guide you. Who's that? The 12, the, the apostles of Jesus Christ. He's going to guide you into all the truth. Now, sometimes believers try to use this as just a generic verse for illumination that God you know, shows us what the word of God means through his Holy Spirit. And it's true, but use a different verse. Right now, he's specifically talking about where the rest of scripture is gonna come. It's gonna come through those who are, who are apostles of Jesus under their apostolic authority will come the rest of the scriptures. He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but what he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And so what we have here is Jesus is telling us how much more scripture to expect. Well, there's, you have the Old Testament, you have the teachings of Jesus, that's the Gospels, and then you have the, the entirety. All the rest of Scripture, he says, is gonna come through apostolic authority, anything that is. So if you have somebody today peddling up to your house saying they have book 67, you need to check their birth certificate. They're gonna be very old. Remember, Acts chapter one, an apostle had to be an eyewitness of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection and his ministry. We have no more apostles of Jesus Christ today. Don't listen to people that call themselves apostles of Jesus, adding to scripture, giving new prophecies. Friends, they're not that old. Read your Bible, Acts 1. They're not apostles. And they do not have, therefore, the authority to guide you in the rest of the truth, to add to the word of God. And so when the last apostle died, who was that, by the way? Apostle John on the island of Patmos. He was exiled there. All the rest of them had really terrible deaths. John the Baptist was allowed to remain and he was the last living apostle so we know that the last word of God is gonna come through John and Jesus here intimated what that's gonna be. He says, and he, not only is the, truth, the rest of the truth gonna come through you, he will even guide you through, what does he say? Things to come. What book is that? That's Revelation. That's right. So through the last apostle, things to come the Bible is complete. All scripture comes through that. Anybody who comes beyond John, anybody who comes beyond Revelation, it's not real. It's not from God. Now, take them to John's last book. Now, take them to Revelation 22. And now you discover that the passage we shared in Revelation 22 is just an exclamation point on a sentence started back in John chapter 16. Think you could explain that to somebody? I hope so. If not, listen to the message later, take good notes. Okay, so what do you do anyway with somebody who does claim to have new revelation from God, extra testaments of Jesus Christ? I'll refer to you to 2 John chapter 1, verse 10. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, what teaching? The teaching of the Bible. Somebody wants to go beyond the Bible, what do you do? He says, do not receive him into your house. Now I know here in Kentucky, folks are friendly. Y'all are nice people, and even people that are doggone rude sons of guns, you're still gonna invite them into your house and try to be just friendly and nice. But what does 2 John 1 say to do with false teachers who add to the Bible? Do not receive them into your house, furthermore, what? Nor give him any greeting. Don't be like, God bless you, hope you have a great day. You know, Godspeed. You know, we don't, we don't wish a ministry well that is sending people to hell. 
That's what 2 John 1 is saying. Don't feel guilty if you're not answering that door. Don't feel guilty if you're saying, not interested, boom, we're done. Don't let them get a foot in the door. They are tricky and they will come to you and they will imply that we believe the same thing. I know because they've knocked on my door and I've had conversations with them. And they'll say, you believe in Jesus. Yeah, yeah, so do we. Huh, maybe we're the same. You believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, right? Right, yeah, you believe that? Yeah, so do we. Maybe we in the Mormon church are the same. No, they define their terms differently. Jesus in the Mormon church, by the way, not, not to make this church message about that, but just so you understand what I'm talking about, they teach that Jesus was just a man like you and I, but that he became a God through his good works. Does that sound like your Bible? If, you, if so, you're reading the wrong one. Um, they say that he was started out as a man, he became a God. Sure, he died on the cross and all that, so it looks legit, but it doesn't have the same uh, grace that, our, that the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus was the spirit brother of Satan. Anybody here wanna, wanna go out on a limb and say they believe that? No, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches, furthermore, they have a phrase in the church where they say, as Jesus once was, so we are now. As Jesus is now, so we too may become. What are they teaching you? That if you join the Mormon church and you be a good Mormon, you believe in that fake Jesus over there, you'll populate your own planet with soul children and you'll become a god. Tell me, did that message come from man or did it come from God? It glorifies man and literally makes you into a God. Friends, this is false teaching. You need to understand that. And so anybody who's adding to the scriptures, friends, they don't mean well. And so we do not bid them well. We do not have conversations with them. We shut the door and, and we warn our neighbors. I mean, that's what we do. Number three here, how do we know the Bible that we have today is the Bible that God gave? One of the arguments you'll hear people say is, oh, that Bible you have, yeah, once upon a time it was a good book, but you Christians have corrupted it over the years. Have you ever noticed when people want to prove a lie, they just add a lot of time onto something? <laughs> you know, oh, billions of years ago the earth was formed and somehow we defied the laws of science and went from disorganized creatures to organized creatures. Doesn't happen today, but it did a long time ago over many years. It's not what the Bible teaches. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, similarly here, people will just say, well, you know, over a great period of time, there's lots of corruption over the Bible, so what we have today is not the word of God. Do we have any kind of confidence here that this is the word of God? Friends, I'm gonna give you a few ways that you can understand and have confidence that the Bible we have today is the word of God. And it must be because A, God promised to preserve the word of God. I'll give you a few verses. Psalm 119.89, he says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Firmly fixed here, is a, it means that something has been set up to stay. In Genesis 35, we have Jacob, right after God reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant to him, it says he set up this, this heavy stone. So, and it, you do that because if you set up a light stone, some kid's gonna go skipping rocks with it, okay? You, you don't want someone walking off with your monument. Okay, monuments meant to communicate something for a long time. And so you get this big, heavy thing that nobody can move. And so the Bible says that in the same way, God's word is firmly fixed, that God himself created a rock big enough that man could never move it. Man cannot change it. Man cannot corrupt it. How long will it be that way? Psalm 1889 says, forever. God promises to preserve his word. Is God all-powerful? My God is, the God of the Bible. Can God preserve his word supernaturally? If you believe in an almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God who created the heavens and the earth, preserving his Bible is a very small thing to him. 
It's not outside of his power. Isaiah 40 verse eight says, the grass withers and the flowers fade. These are things that, these are terms that describe corruption. My wife had some lovely peonies earlier on. They are now corrupted, they're gone. I've got all these little headless peony plants out in our garden now, okay? The flower fades, it corrupts, it becomes a lesser version of what it once was. Grass, especially if you live out in Texas or somewhere where the sun scorches it and it turns brown every July, the, the grass withers. So these are words that describe corruption. The Bible says grass corrupts and flowers can corrupt over time, but what does the word of God do? The word of God will stand forever. Not only is the Bible going to be preserved, it's gonna be preserved in its original state. It won't corrupt like grass or flowers. Matthew 5, 18, truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Heavens and earth. We're not talking about where God lives is gonna blow up. We're talking about what we just talked about the last few weeks. That the earth and its atmosphere and the stars and the planets someday is gonna disappear. It's gonna be, it's, God's gonna destroy it. And he's gonna create a new heavens and a new earth. Okay, he says, until that time, not an iota or a dot. That's a Greek translation of a Hebrew word for jot and tittle. It's the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And it's the smallest little, like a serif, like a, the smallest little, I don't know how you describe it, just a little something coming off the letter, a smallest fragment of a letter. God says, God goes that far. Even the fragments of the letters will be preserved. Did God actually preserve the Bible? We talked about it uh, several weeks back. Talked about how uh, a lot of ancient works, if you have more than 10 copies, it's considered to be a reliable uh, understanding that what we have today is what they had back then because with 10 copies, you can create a majority manuscript. If, if one or two copies say this, but eight copies say something else, you know those were an error and you can create a very reliable majority manuscript. The most we have of any secular historical works, if you remember, is Homer's Iliad. We had 693 copies. So if, if you know, three copies say one thing, but 690 copies say something else, you know what the original actually said. You create a good majority manuscript. If, does anybody remember how many Bible manuscripts and fragments we have today? Over 25,000. I mean, the, uh, the Iliad is the only thing that had really tremendous secular significance at 693. When the Bible is preserved 25,000 times and more over time, one could only say only God himself could preserve it that way, and you'd be right. You'd be exactly right. And this is pretty amazing when you stop and consider how many people have tried to destroy the Bible. Nobody's out there going, burn the Iliad. We're tired of the Iliad corrupting our children and our society. We, we hate the message of the Iliad. People are like, oh, it's a, you know, it's a fine work. You know, we should read that. But with the Bible, has the Bible been attacked? Have people destroyed the Bible over the years? All the time. I'll just give you a few examples. 100 BC, Antiochus IV, he burned every scripture he could find and he decreed death to anybody who owned a copy of the scriptures. That gets rid of a lot of Bible out of circulation. In AD 300, around there, Roman Emperor Diocletian, he burned thousands of copies of the Bible and decreed that if they find a Bible in your home, not only will they burn the Bible, they're gonna destroy your home and everything that's in it. That's a lot of Bibles burned there. In fact, uh, he declared a victory at one point in time. He said that he was holding in his hand the last surviving Bible. He destroyed it and then built a monument over top of it saying he had destroyed every Bible. 
What's interesting is, about 500 years after his death, Diocletian, he was put in this mausoleum, this large room. And 500 years later, did you know they started a church in his mausoleum? I mean, how funny is that? I mean, God has a sense of humor. You can attack God, but you're not gonna get very far. Voltaire, the French philosopher, he declared, in 100 years, the Bible will be a forgotten and unknown book. In fact, in 1778, he says, 12 men started Christianity. Not true, but we know what he means. He says, but one man will destroy it, talking about himself. Unfortunately, in 1778, that was the year God took his life, and Voltaire died. Even funnier yet, <laughs> he dies, and 100 years after his death, guess who buys up Voltaire's old house? The Geneva Bible Society to print Bibles. I mean, how do you find that stuff? It's hilarious. Uh, the American political leader, Robert Ingersoll, once proclaimed, in 15 years, I will have this Bible in the morgue. Exactly 15 years later, Robert Ingersoll died. Friends, you don't mess with God. You don't toy with God. You don't oppose God. You don't oppose his church. You don't oppose God's anointed. You leave those people alone because God has a habit of building churches on the bones of those who oppose him. God is almighty, and we don't toy with him. We don't mess with his word. How else do we know that the Bible today we have is not corrupted? Let me just pause for a moment, B, and show you careful scribal transmission. These people weren't just like, hey, you need a copy of the Bible? I'll whip one out for you this Saturday. Hey, here you go. It's the best I could do. We didn't do Bible like that. You had people, remember in Jesus' day, he would talk about the scribes and the Pharisees. Scribes were those people who have, if you will, a PhD in copying documents, a PhD. And these guys would carefully follow a strict set of rules. And when they would copy the documents, I'll just give you a few of the rules that they would follow. By the way, word, the, the word scribe, it means one who counts. They would count every letter and every word on the page and compare it page to page because it was part of their process of making sure everything was correct. So one of some of the rules, you could only make a copy from an original, not a copy. That's important because if you get a hold of a bad copy, you could create a bunch of bad copies. It's like a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. The further away it gets, it gets really corrupted. And so you could only, if you will, copy from an original. Each column had to be between 48 and 60 lines exactly, and the width of each line exactly 30 letters. No, no word or even letter could be written from memory. You can't go, oh, here we go. I can get that. They're not doing things from memory. They would go letter by letter, word by word, and here's how tedious it is. They would recite every letter. They would be like, as, A, A, S, S, as, they, T, T, H, Scribes didn't have a lot of friends. They, they're not the guys you wanna to invite to your party. I mean, these are, these are boring fellows. They have little to talk about, and all they wanna talk about is their scribal work. They're dull, okay? So, but this is what they did. This is the detail that they would use, and they would have a 30-day review period when they got done with a manuscript where other eyeballs would look at it too, and they would do the counting, and they would go through, and if they found even one mistake on the page, they'd throw out the entire page. One mistake, and that mistake could be this. There was supposed to be a hair measurement, literally using a hair, measuring in between words, and if two words touched, mind you, they're the same words and they're spelled correctly, if they even touched, they threw out the entire page. And while they're reviewing a manuscript, if they find three such pages that need replaced, they throw out the entire manuscript. 
This is how detailed they were in transcribing the Bible. And see, we're gonna look at this and finish up. Declaring what, uh, the Bible itself declared itself to be scripture. That's how we know what scripture is. The Bible told us it's scripture. The Bible proved through its content that it is scripture. And this brings up a word that you need to know called canon, not something that shoots, okay? Canon meaning a measuring rod. It measures up. Those of you who, you know, you're nerds, okay, you maybe you follow Star Wars or Star Trek like I did as a kid, and people would talk about, oh, is that part of Star Wars canon? Okay, that's the word we're talking about. In other words, did George Lucas approve that this is true and part of the Star Wars universe, or is it not? Because if George Lucas didn't say it, then it doesn't belong in the Star Wars canon. So don't, don't tell me about your fan fiction. Don't tell me about some other story, some novel. That didn't actually happen, okay? This is what we're talking about. There's, there's only certain things that God says is canon. It measures up. It's part of what God, a body of truth that God says is true. Okay, and so how did we know what was scripture? First of all, the Bible told us it was. You'll have things like Jeremiah 1 verse four. He'll say, the word of the Lord came to me. What's that claiming? It's claiming canonicity. It's claiming that God gave me these words. I would never go to my wife and say, the word of the Lord has come unto me that you are supposed to make me pancakes for dinner tonight. I would never say that to her. Plus it wouldn't go over well. I don't say the word of the Lord. I don't tell people God told me because I'm claiming inspiration at that point. Okay, so they're claiming inspiration. Paul claimed inspiration, 1 Corinthians 14, 37. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. So the Bible was, they were, the, when the writers wrote the Bible, they knew they were writing something special. They knew God was working through them. They knew these are not my words. These are commands of God. And so there was never any question in the early church as to what scripture is. They received it as scripture and for several different reasons, okay? Uh, one, the, the scriptures themselves said that they were scripture. Two, they came under apostolic authority. And three, the apostles were doing these miraculous things that could only be done through God's power. And so they knew this guy who said, I've got scripture, that it was true. And so the church immediately received into canon the books that were being written. Well, how about the Old Testament? Jesus declared the whole Old Testament to be canon. He said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets, but I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, he says, but as it actually is, the word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe. I know some of you are thinking, well, what about Paul? He wrote most of the New Testament. Aha! Paul wasn't one of the 12. Was Paul one of the original 12? I see how well you knew your Bibles. You guys have been to Sunday school. No, he was not. But Paul was still an apostle of Jesus Christ, right? Yes, he was. How do we know? Well, go read, read through the book of Acts. Acts 8, God goes, knocks him just smooth off his donkey. That's when you know God's got you something special for you. He knocks the brother off his donkey and says, you're gonna be an apostle to me under the Gentiles. All right. Yes, Lord. So an apostle of Jesus Christ is somebody that was an eyewitness of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Paul was an eyewitness to all of these things as a Pharisee. They were always hanging around Jesus. Okay, so Paul was an eyewitness of these things and, God, and Jesus himself chose him. That's why Paul said in Galatians 1, Paul is an apostle not from men. God, men didn't choose him. 
He says, but through Jesus Christ. Even Peter recognized Paul's authority. He said in 2 Peter 3, 15, our beloved brother Paul, who wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. He says according to the wisdom given him. According to the wisdom given him, he's, he's referring to the fact that he's speaking and writing the wisdom of God. He's letting you know Paul's writings are canonical. They are part of this scriptural canon. So we're gonna be done here. Just give me a sec. So what about all these councils? You'll hear people say, didn't you as Christians just decide what Bible is one day? You just go, oh, hey, here's a bunch of books. No, we didn't. Like I said, Jesus told us more scripture was to come. He told us the Old Testament is good. He says it's gonna come through the apostles. So you know if the apostles wrote it and they declare it to be scripture and they prove it through their many you know, mighty works and miracles, you know it's from God, and the church received it, then why do we have these councils, like the Council of Rome or the Council of Carthage in the 300s AD? Why do we have that? Did they pick out what is scripture? No, they simply identified basically what isn't scripture. If it's outside of what the church has already been using for years and understood to be scripture, it's not scripture. They didn't decide what is scripture, they simply identified it so you and I, who maybe are less educated, we know, oh yeah, Here's why it's scripture. Here's why this isn't scripture. It's sort of like if you ever have an art expert. When we were in China, uh, we often saw uh, phony works of art. People would like paint these beautiful, and you walk into just some like random guy's like stall in like the mall, and he'll have just a bunch of like Monet's and Van Gogh's and things just hanging on the wall. Now, I'm not an art expert, but I know that if you're charging 30 bucks for a painting, in the backwoods of China and the paint's still fresh, probably not real, okay? But here in America, sometimes we need art experts. Do art experts create the art? No, they don't, most of them. But what they are is they are experts in identifying what's true and what's false, and they can tell you, look at the brushstrokes, look at this, look at that, true, false. That's essentially what these councils were. They were art experts. They weren't declaring what's scripture, they're not creating scripture, they're simply identifying, no, that's false, that's false, that's false. This is what the church has been receiving as scripture since the beginning. And that's all those councils were. Here's a practical one for you. People always ask me, what translation should I use? Are all translations created equal? No, no, if you get one called the New World Translation, throw it out. It's a Jehovah's Witness Bible. <laughs> and it'll say things like, in the beginning was, uh, you know, in the beginning was the word, word is with God, and the word was a God. And if you don't know why that's wrong, you need to read your Bible more, okay? Uh, so that's a false translation. But even amongst good translations, you have translations that are literal word for word, and you have some that are paraphrased. They use what are called dynamic equivalents. It means they're translating thoughts and ideas, not the words themselves. And so it allows for someone essentially to write their own commentary into the scripture. So for your Bible study, you want a literal word for word translation. How do you know? I'll give you a couple that I think are really good. One, I'm preaching from the ESV, the English Standard Version. That is a literal word for word translation. It reads very well. It's a good literal translation. Another one that's really good is the New American Standard Bible. Uh, there's another one that just came out from the uh, professors at Master Seminary called the Legacy Standard Bible. I haven't used it yet, but it comes from a good pedigree. People ask too, well, what kind of study Bible do you use? 
Uh, there's a lot of good ones. I've used Ryrie's in the past. I've used Life Application. I've used the Thompson Chain Reference. What I use right now is what I believe, in my opinion, to be the finest study Bible on the market, and it's uh, the MacArthur Study Bible. The reason is, is there is a fountain of wisdom in, that, in, in this book. Every, every chapter, every book actually begins with a historical context, so you know what you're actually reading about before you just start reading how to skin a goat in Leviticus. You're like, what is that about, you know? Oh, let me read the introduction. Okay. It gives you the most robust notes and cross-references I've ever seen. There's topical Bibles at the end. I mean, it's a fantastic reference book. The important thing is this, and we'll finish for real this time. <laughs> the important thing is, friends, is that you understand this, that this book is the, has the signature of God upon it. It is not the words of man. These are the very words of God proven through their prophecies, proven through the historical, scientific, and the unity of the scriptures. It was given to us and accepted by the church, by the, by the apostles themselves, and, and confirmed through many wonders and mighty works. And we still have it today, despite the fact that man has tried to destroy it and burned this book on every continent known to man. The important thing, friend, is not that you just hold a Bible and bring it to church, go home and read it. You're not gonna get everything you need from my preaching. You need to read this book, get up five minutes earlier and just read a little bit and see what God does and see if he doesn't create a hunger in you to know him through his word. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you today that as we study the Bible and what it says about itself, that we can discover that this truly is uh, not words as written by men, but these are the very words of God. Confirmed by Jesus for the Old Testament, the New Testament confirmed through the apostles who were sent out by him. Confirmed through their miracles and mighty works. Confirmed through the fact that the church itself had always known what is Bible and what's not. And it's been passed on from generation to generation to us using very careful scribal habits and tendencies and, uh, and policies so that we know that we have in our hands what God said he himself would preserve for all ages, that it would, uh, that his, his, forever his word will be settled in heaven. God, we thank you for this book. In it, you show us where we come from. In it, you show us about yourself. You show us what the meaning of life is. You show us where we're going when we die and how we can know that we have eternal life in Jesus Christ. God, may we take it seriously today to follow and obey it. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to make a decision to ask Christ into your heart, click on the link in the show notes and we will be able to help you find your way to Jesus. If you enjoyed today's message, give our podcast channel some love by liking and subscribing to it. And as promised, if you would like more information about unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Thank you for spending the day with us. We hope that you have a blessed day.